Good day, amen. Well, grab your Bible. We are in a, a walk through the book of 2 Timothy. So find 2 Timothy with us, if you will. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are some Bibles under the chairs just in front of you. You can grab one of those. If you don't actually own a Bible, take one of those. It is our free gift to you. We'd like you to have it. 2 Timothy. Let me go back to the beginning. We've been off for a couple weeks around the holidays doing, uh, doing some holiday things. So let me catch you up on where we've been. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. It's not Paul's will. According to the promise of life, interesting word to use from a dungeon, life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, who is my beloved son, grace and peace, but not just those which were, remember Paul's typical greeting, also mercy. Why? Timothy's going to need it. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's how Paul thinks about Timothy. I thank God as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. He loves Timothy. Not just because he's like a son to him, but because of Timothy's ministry, because of Timothy's faith. Do you see the little phrase I left out there in verse 3? Paul says something about himself as well. He says, I thank God, by the way... It's a God I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did. Paul has been faithful. He's been faithful. He's not just an apostle. He's not just a figurehead. He doesn't just have the title. He's backed it up with his life so that his conscience is clear. He can say what he's going to say to Timothy with strength and power and enthusiasm. Because he's not only an apostle by title, he's backed it up with his life. I thank my God, whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, redundant about his love and remembrance for Timothy. Longing to see you, Timothy, even as I recall your tears. You get the idea here that Paul's probably weeping as he writes this, thinking about Timothy weeping, either maybe at Timothy's ordination into the ministry, where Paul later says he was there to lay hands upon him and transfer that gift. Or maybe it's at Paul's departure because they were so close. Either way, it shows Timothy's heart. I long to see you as I think about you and your tears so that I myself may be filled with joy. Verse 5, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, Timothy. And I know it first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, but I'm sure that it's in you as well. You have a heritage to fall back on. But that's not it. You have a faith that's your own. It's not just grandma's faith. It's your faith. And it's sure. And I'm convinced of it. Verse 6. For this reason, I remind you, Timothy, to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands, even. Fan that flame. Kindle it. Kindle that fire that God sparked in you. Verse 7. For God has not given us, Timothy, a spirit of timidity or of cowardice. But instead, here's what he's given us. Power and love and discipline. All that was review of where we've been so that I could give you just one verse today and really just focus on one 
uh, point in this one next verse. Verse 8, here it is. Therefore, Timothy, because God has given us not a spirit of cowardice or timidity, because he's given us power and love and a heart for discipline, then verse 8, don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me. That's all one word in the Greek. But join with me in suffering. All one word. Share suffering with me. It's an interesting concept, isn't it? We teach our kids to share. Suffering is not one of those things we, we really like to share, is it? Or we don't want it to be shared with us. But that's what Paul says here. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but actually share my suffering. And it's not just suffering in vain. It's for what? The gospel according to the power of God. Uh, Sometimes the greatest challenge for a pastor, a preacher, is to keep himself from saying too much. Amen? Don't amen that. I wonder sometimes um, if we miss some of the basics, some of the essentials. In the grander scheme of things, I've been acutely aware of that for uh, for a few months now. That that there may be basics, essentials that um, are too easily assumed to be understood. Seems to me that there used to be some things that were assumed or expected about the Christian life that are no longer givens. Yeah, would you agree with that? There used to be some things that were just givens that we don't we don't even second guess we don't even give them a second thought they're 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 granted as true uh, that may not be the case anymore in the last 30 years we've seen some major advances in our world haven't we yeah i mean just think about technology all the things in the last 30 years basically in in my lifetime plus five we've seen a whole lot of advances and changes uh, when i first got into high school we were using typewriters and then these computer things came on as people start talking about email and the internet and then uh, we got cell phones, and granted, they were this big, right? You had car phones that you started out with. They were in this giant box that you had to carry around on, you know, in this big bag. Uh, but we had car phones and then cell phones. Uh, and now it's just it's gone crazy, hasn't it? And uh, some might argue that not all of that is positive. But certainly in Christianity, not all the shifts that have been made in the last, oh, say, 50 years, uh, have been all positive. Maybe we're missing some basics. Maybe we're missing just some Christianity 101. Um, it seems that the givens in Christianity aren't givens anymore. And uh, I, when I teach, uh, have to be careful not to run right past, as we go through a book like Second Timothy, run right past some of the basics, assuming that you, you take them for granted. I, I sort of feel like this morning, you know, the old guy... That, uh, that says, you know, back in my day, uh, we, we knew what it was to earn a dollar, right? These kids these days, they don't... You've heard that? You've heard this before? Yeah. I, I sort of feel like maybe that's uh, what I'm going to sound like today. Each generation, it's interesting, each generation, I think, comes to a point in their life where they hear themselves saying some of the things that their father said, and you mocked, and now you're saying them about the next generation, but you're convinced that it's the right timing to be saying them now, right? Like... I, Dad back there, he was wrong. But now, yeah, this is, I'm saying it within the right context. Yeah. Isn't that funny how we do that? 
There might be some of that. There might be some of that in what I'm saying today. But here it is anyway. Okay? Here it is anyway. Uh, Craig, put that sentence up. I wanted, I wanted to put this next sentence. It's the theme statement, uh, theory of the whole message, if you will. And I want you to be able to see it uh, on the screen because maybe it's a mouthful just to hear and absorb. Maybe it's an earful. There is rightly in biblical Christianity an expectation that we will suffer because of our identification with Christ. Now, I also put that on the screen because there are very important parts. There are words that are intentionally plugged in right there. Let me give you just uh, give you just a little bit of a taste of what I mean. There is meaning most assuredly. And not wrongly, but rightly, meaning correctly. In not just Christianity, but biblical Christianity, because some of us have created a Christianity to our own liking. And it's not really the Christianity of the Bible. It's Christianity in some form or fashion, but it's not biblical Christianity. So I've got to qualify what I say here and say there is rightly in biblical Christianity an expectation that we will suffer. Big word. Maybe that's the word that should have been in all caps. We will suffer. And not just any kind of suffering, but because of our identification, our marking, our baptism, if you will, with Christ. Now, maybe that seems obvious, but maybe not. And this morning, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I'm not going to give you the steps on how we deal with situations where we are being persecuted, etc. That's not the intent of this message this morning. The intent of our talk this morning is simply to make sure that we don't go through verse 8 and 1 Timothy and not... Just stop and say as a congregation, hey, do we do we get this? Do we get this fact that maybe it was granted in days past, but maybe it's not maybe it's not so obvious today that it comes along with Christ in our identification with him. A cross, a sacrifice that's not just meted upon Christ, but it is granted to us as well. There are many reasons why you might suffer in this life. And this is my caveat, because this could be a dangerous message. So listen close to this caveat, this word of caution. Before I say everything else, lest you misunderstand what I'm going to say, I've got to qualify it right here, okay? So let me give you just a couple quick qualifications here. There are many reasons why you might suffer in this life, right? Uh, There are many ways you might suffer and many causes of that suffering uh, and many reasons why you might suffer. But let's be clear. Today, I'm not talking about suffering in terms of illness that you might deal with. I'm not talking about suffering that you might bring upon yourself. Those are different sermons for a different day. Okay. But if you start to mix those two concepts in with what we're going to talk about today, you you get some real problems. I'm talking about the kind of suffering this morning that comes from being clearly and publicly aligned with the person of Jesus Christ and a clear display of. Of his gospel message. That's the cause of the suffering I'm talking about today. That was Paul's situation, wasn't it? In 2 Timothy, end of his life. He'd been in jail many, many times. He wasn't in jail just because he was a troublemaker. I mean, they saw him as a troublemaker, but he wasn't causing any real legitimate trouble. Now, was he? He was identifying himself with the gospel of Jesus Christ and in the man that was crucified by the authorities that be. And that was troublesome. But just typically speaking, he wasn't a troublemaker. I mean, he, 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 wasn't, 
He wasn't a murderer. He wasn't a thief. But he was being treated like one, wasn't he? So he finds himself in that situation. But he didn't put himself in that situation by doing ridiculous things, right? I mean, there's, there's, one, there's one way that you can suffer because of your identification with Christ. And there's a whole other way you can suffer just because... Um, I was going to say you're an idiot, but we've got a few kids in here. So just because you've done, but I said it didn't, didn't I? Uh, <laughs> just because you've brought it upon yourself. Listen to this. Actually, I want you to turn, uh, if you can follow with me, First Peter chapter 4. And I don't always have you flip around, so this is new to you. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to flip to a couple of these. And you may be wondering, why don't I just put the verses on the board? Someone asked me that again recently. Uh, I want you to see it in your Bible. You cannot take this giant screen home with you. It won't fit under the back seat of your car. That's normally where we put our Bible, right? I want you to see it in your, in your word. First Peter 4. Uh, if you need another text to go to, First uh, Peter, the whole letter, is, is our exact topic of the day. Okay, so if you need another authority on this message today, go back and read First Peter. But let me give you First Peter 4 here, just a snap. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. Do you catch it? Since Christ has suffered in the flesh... Arm yourself with the same purpose. What purpose could it possibly be? (laughs) Except to be prepared to suffer even perhaps in the flesh. It's a given in Scripture. Because he who who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lust of man, but for the will of God. That's, That's what we do. Skip down to verse 12, beloved, do not be surprised. Don't be, don't be caught off guard. Don't be shocked at what? At the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. It's not an odd thing that a Christian would suffer in his Christianity. It actually, according to Peter, is a typical thing. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. What he's saying there is the more you suffer in this life, the more you'll be able to glory when you see him in eternity. The more fully you'll be able to rejoice because of the extent that your life is taking you to the depths of your need of him through suffering. 14, if you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Big statement right there. If you are reviled, caveat, for the name of Christ, not just because you've been doing silly stuff out here, okay, but for the name of Christ, then you will be blessed. Skip down to verse 15. But make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or just some troublesome meddler. He has to qualify what he's going to say here. We're not talking about suffering that you brought upon yourself. We're talking about you being dedicated and aligned with Jesus Christ and his message and the suffering that comes upon you for that. Now, let's talk about that. Because that's a different situation. Flip back to Matthew 20. Let me give you another example here. I think that's helpful. 
Matthew chapter 20, first, first book in your New Testament. In Matthew 20, verse 20, James and John's mama comes to talk to Jesus. And um, she's going to put in a request, not just on her behalf, but the, the response of Jesus indicates that uh, the two boys are standing right there as well, and it seems to be the desire of their heart. Look at what they ask for. Then the mother, verse 20, Matthew 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to Jesus, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Place of authority. Place of honor. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're asking for. And then he asks them a question. Now, don't miss this. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Now, Jesus, Jesus isn't talking about the cup sitting on the table. You have any idea what cup he's talking about? Later on, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's praying sweat drops of blood, he asked the Father in all of his humanity, Father, if you, if you could remove this cup from before me, um, that'd be great. But then he quickly follows that up and says, but not my will, thy will be done. That, that's not your purpose here. Your purpose is that I drink this cup, is what he was saying. What was that cup? It was the cup of his suffering. It was the cup of his soon arrest, beatings, humiliation, crucifixion, death. That's the cup. Go back to Matthew 20. You want to sit at my right hand and my left hand. You don't know what you're asking for. Because to have, have a place of elevation means that you have to lower yourself to maybe a place you're not willing to go. Are you willing to drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Meaning, are you willing to follow the path that I'm going to follow? Are you willing to take up your cross and follow me? It's the suffering. It's the suffering. There's a direct correlation. What was the implication? That the elevation in the kingdom is related to what? Suffering. Who suffered the most? Who suffered the most? Jesus. Who is most elevated in the kingdom? Jesus. There's a direct correlation between us and our elevation, our growing in our Christianity, and our suffering. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is said by some to be the greatest religious thinker in America uh, that America has ever produced. I read a story about him one time. He was a very zealous guy. Maybe in the sixth grade, uh, you remember reading Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That's when they had me read it. I don't know why. Public, public school, sixth grade, we were learning about Jonathan Edwards, maybe just because he was such an influential American religious thinker. But they had us read Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God. There's a whole lot more to Jonathan Edwards than just that, let me tell you. Jonathan Edwards was a man fully devoted to his faith. I read a story once um, 
that Jonathan Edwards was so acutely aware of this concept, this correlation between our suffering and our faithfulness, that it goes hand in hand with our Christianity, that one night he was riding his horse home. He, uh, he realized as he was praying that it had been some days since he had any direct persecution because of his allegiance to Jesus. And now you and I at that point would say, praise God, thank you, Lord. I've not been persecuted for a few days now. It was typical for him because he was out there. He was on the front lines. He was vocal. There was no question that he was aligned with Christ. There was no question about the gospel that he was conveying. It wasn't watered down. It was direct. So that was a typical thing for him. And so he's riding home and he, he's, he's praying and it comes to his mind that he hasn't been persecuted in a few days. And instead of being thankful, what's interesting is he said, uh, God, what's wrong with me? Forgive me. It says he got down off of his horse, got on his face, pleading with God, looking for sin in his life. Asking himself, is there anything that I've done where I've not aligned myself with Jesus so to be clear about his message? Because what Jonathan Edwards knew was when you're doing that, you're naturally going to be confronted by a world. What does light have to do with darkness? Nothing. What does darkness have to do with light? Nothing, Scripture says. It's in direct conflict, and Jonathan Edwards knew that well. And instead of praising God that he hadn't, that he hadn't been persecuted, he got down off of his horse and he asked God why. Uh, the story goes on that, that a kid hit him with a rock or a potato. I can't remember which. Hit him in the head with a rock or a potato, and he, and he felt better about, about his situation. All right, so I'm not going to go as far to say this morning that you ought to pray for persecution or in any way that you ought to seek it out. Don't go there. Okay, That's not what we're saying here. We're not looking for trouble. What I'm suggesting is that we think about the necessary connection in Scripture between a life identified with Christ and suffering. In Scripture, it's there. They are linked. And so, there is a question we're forced to ask if that's true. Here's the tough question we're forced to ask. If we ourselves never experience any sort of suffering for the clear proclamation of Christ or his message, why not? Why not? I mean, that's the question I have to ask myself. Uh, that's the question, if this, is, if this is true, and it is biblically, that the world will not appreciate the gospel. It is foolishness to those who are perishing. And therefore, we are fools who proclaim such a message. Now, if in my mind I'm thinking I'm completely aligned and identified publicly and clearly with Jesus Christ and his message, but everything is going perfectly fine for me in my relation to this world, there's, there's no one, there's no one, there's nothing in this world that's pushing back for me. There's nothing that sees any conflict, any rub between a life aligned with Jesus and everything else that goes on out there. Something's not right. And I got to say, well, well, why? Now, don't think too hard. The answer isn't, isn't all that complicated, is it? 
It's because we aren't aligning ourselves with Jesus in a clear public way. And so we are safe from any of that kind of suffering that we might have to endure. Now, isn't that the truth? We are not clearly or perhaps publicly aligning ourselves with either Jesus Christ and the message behind him. Well, maybe we have a form of Christianity, but it's not a Christianity of Paul or that Timothy would know or that Peter, where we read in First Peter, that he would know. How did he end up? Anybody know? Crucified. Which way? Upside down. I mean, it wasn't a strange thing for the men of Scripture, the early Christians. And many Christians today in other parts of our world to go through a fiery ordeal. And it's not strange for them. They don't think, well, this is odd. What's going on with my Christianity that this is the way it's turning out? You see, it's, it's linked directly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it this way, suffering is a badge of true discipleship. Luther put it this way. It is one of the true marks of true discipleship. Suffering. Go to Romans 8. Romans 8. If you know Romans, you know Romans 8 as a highlight. Romans 8 tells us a whole lot about ourselves that is very positive. It gives reason to shout. The title in my scripture here, at the top of your chapter, you see you have little titles there. They're not in the inspired text, but our compilers of our Bibles put those in there to kind of give us a cliff note on what the chapter is about. Mine says deliverance from bondage. That's a, that's a very positive thing. The first verse, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. The chapter is chock full of good news. But pick up in uh, verse 16. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. That's good. The Holy Spirit is going to speak to the spirit implanted in me, confirming that I am his child, if I am. And if we're children, then we're heirs. That's good news. You need to know that. You're joint heirs with Jesus. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. He's your brother, in a sense. But here it is. Among all this positive good news about your Christianity, do you see what else is an evidence confirming that you are a child of God? What does it say? If indeed we suffer with him, who's him? Jesus, so that we may also be glorified with him, who? Jesus. Are you sure you want to drink of this cup? We will suffer. So here in Romans chapter 8, we have this incredible identity. We're children of God with all the privileges that are beyond our even comprehension. We don't, we don't even fully grasp all the good news that's in that, in that phrasing, in that wording. And rather than being exalted and honored by our world and treated with some respect because of who we are in Christ and because of our elevated identity... Here's what John MacArthur said. We are just the opposite. We are antagonistic in the culture. We are a problem in the society. And the society sets itself against us. And the more faithfully, listen, and the more faithfully we live out our Christian life, the more hostility we can expect. Now that's just Christianity 101. 
If they hated me, Jesus said, they're going to hate you. That's unless, that's unless you keep me hidden. Or even if you do push me forward, you make me look to be something that I'm not. You make my message tolerable. You soften it. You dull it. You sweeten it. Listen to Hebrews 2.10. Don't turn, just listen. For it was fitting for him, that's Christ, for whom all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory. Now listen to this. To perfect the author of their salvation through, you know what it says? Sufferings. Sufferings. First Peter, for you have been called for this purpose. Since Christ suffered, you suffer. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8, it says, it says this of Christ. And though he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. He suffered, he learned obedience, and he gained eternal glory through his suffering. In Matthew's gospel, there are examples after examples. I could go on and on. I'm going to skip that one. I think it was Augustine or Luther, I don't recall which, who said, if they gave Jesus a crown of thorns, why should we expect a crown of roses? If they gave Jesus a crown of thorns, why is it that we should expect a crown of roses? Christianity 101, going public with Christ isn't safe in any culture, in any country, in any time. It isn't safe. Christ and his gospel are foolishness to those who are perishing. And those who align with Christ are fools themselves. If your religious position looks smart to the world, think about it. If the position you take on religion looks pretty smart to your friends and neighbors who aren't believers, um, something is off. Something is off. I'm not suggesting you go out of your way to be hated by men. Here's what I'm saying, though. If you live out loud for Jesus in a clear, unadulterated way, proclaiming the true and complete message, not just the good news, but the bad news that makes the good news good, the full, complete gospel, if you align with Christ to that degree, you won't have to go find trouble. You won't. We we won't, will we? This isn't a message about... Finding somewhere we can stir up some trouble. It's a message to remind us of the basic principle that if we are who we say we are, and more importantly, our God is and has done what He said He would do, then that is not a message that the world wants to hear. It goes directly against everything they're trying to do, namely, be their own person. They don't want to submit to a higher authority. It, it flies in the face of our culture. And so then we have to ask, if we're, if we're getting along just fine, then something, something is awry. Have you ever heard anyone, uh, and I'll finish on this. You ever heard anyone, when they're talking about their faith and maybe somebody's challenging them on their faith, 
they make a statement sort of like this. You know, even if Christianity isn't true, even if Christianity isn't true, it's really been a positive thing for my life. Uh, it's been a noble way to live. There's been a lot of positive that's come out of me being a Christian. Even if it's not true and I die and I find out, you know, we all just turn into worm food. Uh, it's fine. It was worth me giving my life to it. You ever, you ever heard anyone make a comment like that? Now, I get that. That makes a little bit of sense. What do you think Paul would say to something like that, though? Do you understand what you're saying when you say that or you hear someone say that? What you're saying is that even if it's a lie, eh, it's not that bad either way. Here's what I think Paul would say after he slaps you upside your head. uh, I think he's going to quote Corinthians. He said this, if in this life only, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. let Let me explain that. If in this life only we've hoped in Christ, meaning if I come to the end of my life and there's nothing else, if there is no resurrection of the saints, if this, if this whole deal isn't real, if it's a sham, if it's a lie, if I come to the end of my life and I've hoped in Christ but it's only been good for here and now, then guess what? You and I are to be pitied the most among all Men. Now, why? Follow me here. Why would he say that? Because that's that's in stark contrast to those of us who maybe said, you know what? If it's not real, I mean, it's it, it was a good way to live. It was a noble way to live. You know, I, I had morals and values, et cetera, et cetera. What's the difference? The difference is this basic idea played out in Paul's life that may not be played out in our life. Namely, that being devoted to Christ and hoping in that resurrection causes your life to look a certain way. And that certain way that your life looks is not going to turn out well in most cases because it doesn't jive with this present world. It's light in a dark world. And so in Paul's mind, you got to think about his life. He's writing second Timothy from a dungeon. I mean, a real deal dungeon, not on house arrest. Remember, The worst place you can think of. There were no prisoner advocates here. Think of his life. Paul could not say, well, if it's not real, it's been okay. It was a good choice. Paul'd say, and he'd probably curse right here. I'm sorry, he would. There's no way I'd give my life to what I've given it to. If this isn't real, we're the most to be pitied. Because we're idiots in dungeons. We're fools for this Christ. Now, if it's not real, don't do it, people. Don't give your life to this. We look foolish and rightly so. Why? Because he knows that necessarily if I identify with Christ, I'm going to be down here in this hole. The world isn't going to love me. They're going to hate me. Message isn't going to be received. It's going to be rejected. And if I stand up in a clear way and I don't paint Jesus to be a picture of something that would be tolerable for our world, 
then to some degree, I'm not going to jive here. There ought to be somewhere that I conflict with those in darkness. And I won't have to seek it out. But as I live Jesus out loud, it's going to happen. And it's because Paul lived that. He couldn't say, well, if it's all a lie, then that's fine. You know, it's just been a good way to live. No, it's been a terrible way to live. Let me read you 2 Timothy. Therefore, do not be ashamed, Timothy, of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. It's a given for Paul. He wants to be sure that Timothy knows it's a given. It's just the way life's going to go. Standing tall for Jesus. Do you notice a little bit of uh, maybe sarcasm here on the part of Paul? Whose prisoner is he? Well, he's the prisoner of Rome, right? No, not in Paul's mind. Whose prisoner is Paul, according to verse 8? Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his, capital H, prisoner. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Paul from a dungeon. Calls himself a prisoner, but not a prisoner of the state. He's a prisoner, a slave to Jesus Christ. And he's calling his beloved son. Don't run away from this. Listen. You're going to have to come this way. You're going to have to come this way. Let's pray. Father God, we... um, um, At certain times in life, Father, I've found myself in clubs, so to speak, that I didn't uh, want to be a, a part of, a member in a, in, a, in, a, in a group that I didn't, I didn't really want to be a member of. A part of something that, um, it turns out, wasn't all that great, wasn't fun and games. And that's sort of how I feel here after this message. In a sense, God, you, we're part of we're part of something. We're part of something that uh, maybe isn't the same sort of portrait that we've painted for Christianity here in the last twenty or thirty years. Maybe we don't think enough about sharing in your sufferings. But your word makes it clear that if we are children, we will share. We will share. And so, Lord, we ask the hard question of ourselves this morning. I ask of myself. Is my faith, my sonship being confirmed at all based on the reaction of this world? To my alignment with you. If I have no share. If I have no part. 
and the cross. And why not? Father, you beckon us like Paul does for Timothy to follow in your footsteps, to take up our cross, to die to ourselves, to be buried in Christ and with Christ and to be raised and to walk in the newness of the, the life you've given us. But as we walk this earth, um, Father God, we, we necessarily are in conflict with the world. And that makes sense, Lord. I mean, you've left us to be your representatives, to extend this gospel message, to spread the light into the darkness. It makes sense that we're in direct opposition to the powers that be here on earth. And Lord, we're not looking for a fight. We're not looking for a fight. But we're not going to push the cup down the table. Lord, cause the men and women of Cornerstone Church and those who are here this morning who name you as Savior, cause us to be bold Number one, to be bold in our own hearts and minds. Give us the courage to ask the hard questions. To not sleep well until we've dealt with the hard questions. Number two, Father, give us the courage to be willing to stand in a clear and bold way before our friends and our neighbors, maybe our loved ones, our co-workers, our schoolmates. And Lord, help us to stand even if, even if it's uncomfortable. Even if, it, uh, even if it seems to put us at odds. Because what we know is what you knew. When you faced the cross, you saw the joy beyond it. We know, Father, that the gospel is good news. And so, Lord, we ask that as you pull the scales back from the eyes of men and women in our, in our circles of influence, that you would prepare their hearts. The truth is that the only way there won't be conflict between the gospel and us identifying with you is that if you grant them grace that you open their hearts to receive the truth. And so we ask you to do that. That maybe where there's been conflict, that you would pull the curtain back in their hearts and minds so that they might, they might see the truth for what it is. That they might see you for who you are. Father, we love you. Sealed this this word from your scripture on our hearts calls us to ponder it. In Jesus' name, who is our cornerstone. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand? We're going we're gonna to do one more song. Give you a moment just to contemplate. Ask God to, to reveal to you where you need adjustment. We don't come to this place to leave the same. We come to be sharpened. 
And the word of God is what sharpens us. Amen. With the help of the Holy Spirit, as you stand, whether you sing this last song or whether you just stare at the floor, whether you come to the altar and kneel, uh, whatever you do, just give God, give the Holy Spirit permission to either whisper what he wants to whisper to you or shout it as loud as he wants to shout it to you so that we don't, we don't leave this place the same. Constantly being conformed into the likeness of Christ, the firstborn among many brethren. Amen? Amen. Let's sing. There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I could search for only eternity, Lord, and find there is none like you. There is none like you. No one else can touch my heart like you do. I could search for all eternity, Lord, and find there is none like you. like you mm. no one else can touch my heart like you do I could search for all eternity Lord and find there is none like you search for all eternity Lord and find there is none like you you want to come back next week Paul's going to tell us why he can endure why he can walk the path that he's walked and call Timothy to walk the same path there is a God there is a God that makes it all worth it, he's going to tell us. There is a bigger picture of all eternity that, that makes it worth it. That there is a God that is like nothing else. That gives him the strength to do what he does. To go to the extremes that he does. To endure through hardship 
and suffering. He's going to tell us about that, God. Um, maybe this morning uh, you're, you're thinking, you know what, if, if, there, if there's a God that would cause men to live in such a way, then that's a God I need to know. Did you realize that that is a point of evangelism? I don't know if you realize that or not. In apologetics, it means in the testifying about your faith, in the defense of the faith, one of the, one of the strongest arguments you have for your faith are that there are men and women who haven't relented in the face of suffering. That the men who walked with Jesus didn't relent. They went to their death. And upon, on upon the threat of death and torture, they didn't relent. And you don't make stories up like that. If it's not real, if it's a lie, you give it up, buddy. Ah, you're twisting my arm. It wasn't real. He didn't really come back from the dead. He was just like everyone else. He's in the grave. No. They went to their death saying, he's real. He's real. And maybe you sense this morning that if, if that's the kind of God we're talking about, then I, I need a relationship with him. Why don't you find me after service? I'd love to talk to you about, about making amends with your God. Amen? Because he has made a way to do that.